welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, April 12th, we are studying John chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. In today's text, Jesus reveals himself to his disciples for a third time after his resurrection. This time he does so while they are by the Sea of Tiberias. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Brian Flammy. Pastor Flammy serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flammy, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Hey, it's great to be back. I always like it. Pastor Flammy, as we get started today concerning the context, the end of chapter 20 sounded like it was going to wrap up the book very nicely. John has told us that Jesus did other things, but he wrote these things, John wrote these things down so that we would believe in Jesus and have life in his name. And it sounds like that's where the gospel should end. But then here comes chapter 21. So talk to us about context. What What's going on here? Why chapter 21? Wait a second. There's a chapter 21. I thought we were done with John. <laughs> I mean, he just said there in verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written this in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Fade to black. Roll credits. And then, nope, it fades to black, but no credits. It, you know, the scene comes back, and now we see the disciples hanging out next to the sea, which is interesting because that's actually how you find the disciples for the first time in the Synoptic Gospels. Jesus finds them by the Sea of Galilee, which is also known as the Sea of Tiberias. I think it's in John chapter 6, where in fact, uh, John explains that, you know, the two names cover the same body of water. So this is the big inland lake that's in Galilee that uh, a lot of the action of the gospel takes takes place around. Um, now, the, what, what's really, really interesting about this is that... Um, John just mentioned many other things, <laughs> and then mm. and then uh, this is added, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's accidental. I think it's very much so on purpose. Um, that there is a conclusion, uh, a, a kind of a crescendo of the gospel. Absolutely, at the end of chapter twenty, it's the theme. You get the theme for the whole book there, at the very end. These things are written that you may believe, right? Uh, but just like in all the best uh, uh, things that present human stories to us, either through books, television plays, and even in autobiographies and true stories, as they're being presented for an audience that's listening or watching, you never, never, never end at the height of the, uh, or at the height of the action, or at the, or right at the point where you get to the main point and then everything goes black. Maybe some avant-garde filmmakers do that usually people like a little bit of closure. And so I think that this follows very naturally after chapter 20 as the desire for closure, especially for St. Peter, is still there in the hearers of St. John and the people who would have been hearing their pastor read from his gospel. 
you remember that even though Peter is the first one to reach the tomb, right? It's John who goes in. <laughs> and, and Jesus appears to the disciples and there's this interaction between uh, uh, you know, the disciples who were there and, and Thomas who wasn't. And then Thomas is there and he receives special attention from Jesus. But still, what's hanging in the background there, it, it fresh in our memories, not very many verses ago, was St. Peter's denial three times denial of our Lord Christ, saying that he doesn't know the man, right? Uh, he sinned against his faith. Uh, he sinned against his Lord. And, and we uh, oftentimes talk about this as pastors with our people. Uh, this is a terribly, spiritually shameful, damaging, even uh, faith-killing sin. Now, Judas, of course, betrays Jesus for money. And overcome by sorrow for what he has done, he takes his own life, right? That's, that's despair. However, there's another kind of despair that leads to what we call repentance, right? Uh, and this is the, the godly contrition that leads, uh, to, that leads to the absolution, the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins. Already you have that tacitly when Jesus uh, speaks, uh, go, and, and, and I think it's in Mark's gospel, right, in the resurrection announcement, Jesus says to the women who, or I'm sorry, the, the angels say to the women who come, uh, go tell the disciples and Peter, right? And he's not mentioned necessarily there as the, as the leader of the apostles, uh, but rather as the one who requires the special comforting news of the resurrection because of his denial, that the Lord has worked out his, his forgiveness, right? And that despite his sin, he is in fact, through the death of his Lord, reconciled to the Father. Um, so in John's gospel, I think it's wonderful. It's absolutely masterful that the apostle uh, uh, continues on to give us this story of the third time that Jesus appears to the disciples. Now, you, you mentioned that uh, a lot of critical scholarship over the past 150, 200 years has really come down on the line that this is a later edition. It doesn't belong here. The literary style is not the same. Um, we even talked about Lenski, uh, a pretty conservative Lutheran commentator on the New Testament, who himself believes that these are th that these words were not original to uh, uh, St. John's Gospel, but they were added later at the prompting of the Ephesian elders or presbyters, uh, who would have come to John saying, while he was still you know bishoping and and and, uh, act and carrying out the duties of his apostolic office in Asia Minor, saying to him, "We've heard you tell this story." about the catch of fish and how Jesus uh, pronounced, uh, uh, you know, reinst or pronounced these beautiful words to St. Peter and uh, strengthened him in his apostolic office. Why don't you include this also at the end of your, uh, at the end of your gospel? The only trouble with that is that, uh, uh, I mean, maybe, a, a, maybe you could go along with that when, when you're talking to, about like Mark, and, and how his gospel ends, and then you have the 16th chapter, and now you can argue about that with somebody else at some other time. I don't want to get into that with you. <laughs> but, but I will say that um, that doesn't, textually, it's not justified, right? right? Like we have several, we do have extant Greek copies of Mark's gospel that where you can't find certain, uh, certain parts of the 16th chapter. Every single extant copy in Greek that we have of John's gospel includes the 21st chapter. All right. So let that sink in for a second. So there's really no reason textually to doubt the authenticity 
of the 21st chapter. Now, you would think that, like, if his gospel had been circulating for a while without the 21st chapter, then at least you would have a quote-unquote tradition of reading John without it. But that is nowhere evident in, in church history uh, or in uh, – that's nowhere – at least in, from the, the sources and the commentators that I read, uh, there's no justification that, that such a tradition ever existed, Right. Uh, and so we should, I, if textually, we are completely justified. I think thematically, we are well justified to believe that this is authentic to John's gospel. And, uh, and like, I, like I said before, uh, it really, really helps us to understand Jesus's love and concern for St. Peter and, uh, and helps us to understand also this wonderful interaction between John and Peter, who are two of the pillars of the apostolic church, you know, uh, Peter from Rome. And, uh, and St. John there in Asia Minor, you know, these two men are responsible for so much of the New Testament uh, and the preaching of the New Testament that it's great for us to see them side by side, interacting with one another and, and uh, how Jesus gives, you know, the special instruction to St. Peter, which you'll talk about with a guest on another day about how it's necessary for him to, uh, for St. Peter to follow him in the way of the cross even if that's not necessarily, you know, God's desire and his plan for St. John, right? Hmm. Let's go ahead then and just jump into this text. This is John chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out, laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. That's our text for today. That's John 21, verses 1 to 14. So, Pastor Philemi, it does, you know, even as you start this chapter, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and it, he did it in this way. It does strike you as a sort of a, I don't know if epilogue is the right term, but it is that sort of conclusion. Here, we're going to kind of wrap things up in a a falling action kind of way to, to use a few literary terms. It does have that kind of feeling. It it does strike me, you know, in the previous chapter, John was pretty specific when things were happening. You had the evening of that day and then eight days later. And this one just happens 
after this. I personally would like to think this happens on a Sunday, since everything else that Jesus does after Easter, it seems, happens on a, well, not everything. His ascension wasn't a Sunday, ah. but he, he often shows up on a Sunday. I'd like to think this was on a Sunday, but I, I obviously can't prove that. Uh, but but note the location. Let's talk a little about the location, the Sea of Tiberias and Galilee, the, the importance of this location, especially you mentioned we learned that from the synoptics. Talk about the importance of the location here. Yeah, the location is expected. That's one thing to note. It's not surprising, especially if you've been reading uh, John's gospel, uh, perhaps with the other evangelists having preached beforehand and their words freshly on your mind as well. Uh, you know, so you have the angels saying to the women, go tell Jesus's disciples uh, to go to Galilee because he will meet them there. Right. That's Mark 16, 7. Uh, again, it happens in Matthew 28, verse 7. And in Matthew 28, verse 16, you have the ascension or not the ascension, rather, but uh, uh, you have Jesus meeting uh, the disciples in Galilee on top of a mountain. No mention of the sea there, but he does meet with them, all of them. Uh, on a mountain, not just the seven. And then he gives them the instituting words for baptism uh, and also the commission to go and to make disciples of all nations through baptism and catechesis, right? Uh, And then Jesus gives them the beautiful promise, I'm with you always to the end of the age. What's interesting is you don't have this information about Jesus meeting the disciples post-resurrection in Galilee in John's gospel itself. Uh, So uh, this is, in fact, information that we pick up from the synoptics, which I wonder if this is John, uh, because he does have so much unique and interesting material, uh, extended discourses and and sermons from Christ that are that are not found in the synoptics, that he's in a way tipping his hat to his brother saying, I respect you guys. I know exactly what you did and why you did it. and, And God be praised for your words. Right. And and here's something that that people we'll have to kind of pick up on, not by reading what I've written, but by reading what you've written, you know? So we have those connections to the Synoptic Gospels that are important for us to keep in mind. We'll bring up Luke 5 in a little bit. Let's let's talk a little bit further about John before we go there. So you've got those connections, and the, the scene is set with, what, seven of the disciples, Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, two sons of Zebedee, and then two others. And Simon Peter says, I'm going fishing. Those six others say, we'll go with you. Why? And I suppose the text doesn't reveal to us plainly, perhaps, but but why why do they want to go fishing? Why does Simon Peter say this right now? I mean, this is one of the great uh, questions that the scholars have apparently been debating about. Uh, in fact, it's been suggested somewhat impiously, it seems to me, <laughs> that uh, some of the commentators have said, well, the disciples, having lost their Lord and have wandered back to their old lives in Galilee, and now they're picking up their old trade, having, forg- having forgotten Christ's uh, uh, words to them that they are to go out and to preach, and whoever hears you hears me, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so this is an active, abject despair. And Peter, being the, the chief among the equal dis- apostles here, Uh, kind of uh, leads the way and leads these other significant uh, uh, and important disciples also into despair. I think that's ridiculous. I think that's absolutely wonky. Uh, Okay, so a couple of reasons for that. Uh, First of all, the disciples knew that they were to go to Galilee and wait to see Jesus there. Uh, The angelic instructions to the apostles were a little bit vague. 
right? And so you would expect them to go to Galilee to the places they were most familiar with, their family homes on the edge of the sea where they had, especially the sons of Zebedee and Peter, had plied their trade upon the waters fishing, right? Uh, so you would expect them to go there. And while they're there waiting for Jesus on the octave of Easter, of course, on a Sunday, I agree with you. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Another commentator just said <laughs> simply, yeah, this is obviously the octave of Easter. <laughs> obviously. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this brings us to the, the second reason why this is not that surprising. I mean, not just because it's familiar, but because there is inherent pleasure in fishing. In fact, it's one of the great ways to pass time, right? Uh, you and I do it with a rod and a reel. These men like to do it with a net. And in fact, this is one of the ways that they probably uh, uh, had first bonded uh, as followers of John the Baptist, right? And they were still, after they began to listen to and attend and, and, and become disciples of Christ, uh, Christ had to grab them again from their nets in Galilee after they began to follow him down south in Judea along the banks of the Jordan, you know? And so this is, uh, it's, I think that there's something about this where they see a familiar setting before them. They, they see the pleasure of being on the water in a boat and fishing and being amongst one another, giving each other, you know, their Easter resurrection comfort as they're awaiting their Lord. And so they do it, right? I, I don't think that the answer has to get much more complicated than that. Even though the temptation is, is heavy, I understand, to either A, allegorize, right, or B, to criticize <laughs> what's going on here. Uh, allegorize it to say, what deep spiritual meaning does it mean uh, or is conveyed when Peter says, I am going fishing, right? Mm. Uh, yeah. that, that, in fact, is the way that a lot of the uh, patristics try to take it. They, they take especially this chapter in a highly stylized spiritual way, which we'll get into a little bit more later. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you think that it's plausible that here they are waiting for Christ, just as the angels had instructed them? And hey, we have our boats, we have our nets. Why not? I I think I I think there's a lot to be said for that because it is a very plausible, just like you said, a very simple, basic human proposition that Peter throws out there. And I can I can very easily picture this happening still today, even among my own sons. Where, where I, I know which one it would be who would say to his brothers, hey, let's go fishing. And, and even to the point that not all of them would want to go with him, but some of them would, kind of like what happens here. Yeah, we'll go with you. And just that very, you know, this is, this is basic human interaction. It's an enjoyable thing. They're in Galilee waiting for Jesus. He hasn't appeared to them at this point, And so they're going to go fishing to pass the time. And so just to see it on a very, this is kind of what happens in general and it happened to the disciples here, makes sense. The, the one thing that, that perhaps I, I could see, I don't know if, if allegorizing is the way that I would think about it, but the, the comparison of this chapter to Luke 5 in particular, the miraculous catch of fish that Jesus gives toward the beginning of his ministry, which he attaches to the going and, and making a fisher of men, mm. kind of sometimes the maybe... This is the way that I've heard it, which I, I could perhaps see, is that as in, in Luke 5, Jesus was seeking to draw these fishermen so that they would become fishers of men. Perhaps here it's a reinstitution of their call after his resurrection that maybe they had forgotten or needed a, a repetition of. I, but I don't I don't think I would think of that as despair, but, but rather just a, a you need to be 
you need to hear this call again. And as you pointed out, particularly for Peter, after his denial, and of course, Jesus will pull him aside later. We'll look at that text tomorrow. But that, that's kind of how I think about it. Oh, yeah. There are important connections here between uh, what we read in Luke chapter 5 and uh, what Jesus tells the disciples to follow him and how they caught their miraculous draught of fish then and how he calls them now, right? Uh, I think that, and, and in fact, somebody, I, I was reading one of the fathers who said back then their calling was yet imperfect. Hence the breaking of the nets as they were pulling in the fish. Now their call has been perfected. Hence the unbreaking of the nets uh, as they bring in the draught of fish. Ah, uh, maybe I. I don't know. Uh, um, anyways, it'll it'll be fun to get into that maybe a little bit later. I I do think that going fishing, right, returning to that, doing a familiar activity before the events of you know the past three years. And the, the, the highlights of the ministry of Christ, his preaching, his, his signs, uh, his death and his resurrection, that returning to this is in some ways, yeah, kind of a reset, uh, that Christ is going to find them there once again and, re, and, and reiterate his instructions for ministry, especially to Peter. Uh, I, I find that very, very attractive. It's certainly true for Peter who needs those words after his denial of Christ, right? Uh, but at the same time, I, 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 I think what's really at play here is the memory of the disciples doing something familiar in a boat, right? And the first time that, uh, and what happened the first time when, when they uh, uh, didn't catch and then finally caught at Christ's word, and then this time what happens, uh, you know, they think of the difference in understanding and how they're, especially St. John's memory uh, kind of came alive all at once, it seems like in this, in this text, that as, as they were going through the motions, somebody's saying, hey, throw your net over here. Then suddenly John sees it. He knows it. He's like, yes, we've been here before. I know exactly what's happening. That is, in fact, Jesus, you know? And so there's, a, I think, less uh, kind of a, a formal parallel between an imperfect calling and a, and a perfect calling. And I, I, I think that there's, there's more uh, a memory of the first time that Christ called us, right? And the joy and the comfort that comes with Christ calling us again in similar circumstance. Before we didn't know the way of the cross and the resurrection. Now we do know the way of the cross and the resurrection, right? Before there was great uncertainty and now there is great joy, right? Uh, at even being sent out to do the difficult aspects of the apostolic ministry that will lead, you know, as, as Jesus will say to Peter later on, uh, to, to the cross and to his own death. And, but before they were hesitant, now they're glad, they'll gladly do it because the resurrection of Christ is, has made all the difference. Yeah, I, I think I mean, it's certainly no accident the way that those two things correspond to each other, that Jesus would repeat this call to them. And I, 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 without perhaps all the allegorical details, I do, I do like the idea of, of a, an imperfect call and now a perfect or, or completed call. Maybe to think about it that way, not that there was something wrong with the first one, but now it's, it's complete. Now that Jesus has been glorified, as John's been saying all along with, with his cross and his, his resurrection, now the call is made complete. It's repeated here at the Sea of Tiberias. So these seven disciples are in the boat all night. They catch nothing. This sounds familiar. As day is breaking, Jesus is there on the shore. They don't know it's him yet. And he calls out to them, children, do you have any fish? Talk a little bit about the way Jesus addresses them as children. 
thinking forward to John's epistles, he's going to pick up on this this idea. Talk about how Jesus addresses us as children. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think the word that he uses here is like pais, python, right? Uh, as it, which might be translated as, as some of the commentators say, better as lads hmm. or, or fellows. <laughs> hey, boys! <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, whereas in uh, John's uh, epistles, we just got done studying his first epistle uh, in, in Bible class, in fact. He, he speaks uh, using the word tekna, right? Uh, so there is a difference in vocabulary. That being said, I, 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 I think the way it reads in English has made a firm impression upon my mind. It's created the bias that, yes, in fact, the way that Christ addresses his disciples is as children, right? He is truly the, uh, you know, the father of righteousness for them, having brought them this great gift of his blood. And so also when John, an apostle, is a minister of Christ to the congregations, of course, he's going to address them as children as well, right? He is their mm -hmm. spiritual father, even as Christ is now to the disciples. Yes, their brother according to the flesh, but also a, a, a father of mercy, you know. And uh, it, 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 so, yeah, I, uh, it's interesting. <laughs> I don't think it's condescending. I don't think that Christ is, is trying to make fun of them for fishing, right? Uh, I, I definitely think that this is a, a term of endearment and affection for the men that, that he loves most in this world, right? I mean, he loves us all. I, I get that, right? And he shed his blood for all of us. But you have to understand sort of the, the real, the family that these men had become. And, uh, uh, you know, the disciples and listening to Christ and Christ and ministering to his uh, you know, these men who have been dependent on his every word and action for the past three years, right? This is a very familial human scene, right, in, in chapter 21. And maybe that's part of the reason why it, it feels a little bit different uh, than some of the things that had come before. Like, especially in Jesus's uh, Maundy Thursday discourses uh, leading up to his betrayal and arrest, there's this really, I think there is this incredible formality where Christ is first saying, I'm going to, going to wash your feet. Uh, you call me, you know, Lord and master, and that is right. And that he speaks to them about uh, the things that are to come. Um, and it's, you know, the, the, it, 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 but that's, I think something, there's a, an important aspect of that that's changed. And a greater familiarity is gained between Jesus and the disciples after the resurrection, when he begins to call them, you know, brothers uh, and now the father is no longer Christ's father, but their father, you know, mm. and, and, uh, and this is one of the results of that, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It is a, a beautiful address and it is a very familiar, wonderful scene between Jesus and his disciples here in John 21. We're going to keep looking at it on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Brian Flammy this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, April 12th. We're studying John chapter 21, verses 1 to 14 with Pastor Brian Flamy. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flamy, prior to the break, we'd gotten to Jesus' address to his disciples on the boat. They don't yet recognize him. They tell him that, no, they've not caught anything. So he tells them, throw the net on the right side of the boat. You'll find some. They do. They catch so many, they can't haul it in. And then that's when John recognizes it's the Lord. He says it particularly to Peter. And Peter, in typical fashion, rushes to do something. Talk, I mean, again, you talk about the just the endearing nature of this text. The way Peter responds here, too, just strikes me as the, the wonderful love between Jesus and his disciples and, and vice versa when they realize it. Maybe talk a little bit about Peter's, I think we'd call it impetuous, elsewhere, but talk about his reaction. Yeah, he has a tendency to throw himself into bodies of water whenever Christ is around. That's right. <laughs> if, if Jesus is on the outside of the boat and Peter's in the inside of the boat, then there's a good chance that Peter's going to cast himself into the water. I'm just saying. That's right. And of course, we're talking about how Jesus walked on the water, right? And, and Peter said, Lord, let me come to you. So Jesus says, Okay. Uh, and, and, you know, that makes for a wonderful sermon material where, where Peter looks at the waves, right? And he's overwhelmed by them. But as long as he's, but Jesus reaches out, he, he rescues him. And as long as Peter's eyes are on the Lord, right? Representing his faith and that he stands upon the water impossibly, miraculously, and yet faith can do such things, right? Uh, here it is indeed faith that casts Peter into the water, right? The evangelist is St. John, you know, the, the disciple whom Jesus loves. And he says to Peter, whereas one of the commentators says he must have whispered this into his ear for shock and awe that his Lord had yet appeared a third time, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and Peter hearing that uh, because he was stripped for work, naked, as it in fact says in the text, uh, he, he needed something to wear once he gets to shore. So he ties that around himself and dives into the water. Now, the ancients, the patristics make all kinds of like spiritual hay of what does it mean that he wrapped his garment his outer garment around himself that threw him in, mm. you know, I, I don't really care. I, I, I think that, look, if you try to swim into the clothes on, it's, it's a little bit difficult. It can be done. It's better if you find a better way to carry it with you. Okay. So for the sake of getting to Jesus faster, right. He, he, uh, he, he threw around his garments instead of putting them on carefully so that he could get to Jesus. Right. Uh, and, and, and what is it that drives him to Jesus is like we said before, it's his faith. He believed the, the report from St. John that, hey, it's the Lord. When his memory was struck by the fact that we had gone all night without fish and at this man's command, we now have fish. That changed everything for St. John, right? Just like he, he went into the tomb on, on Easter Sunday and he believed, so also now he remembers uh, and it the, all the words, all the events bring this to mind that the only person who could speak to us in this way to cause what has just happened to happen is in fact Christ himself. Now, a hundred yards away is actually quite a good distance, right? So in the text, it says, what, 200 Football cubits? Field. Yeah. So 200 cubits is, a, so that's like a, a cubit is what, a foot and a half or so, something? Yeah. Uh, so if you take a foot and a half, 1.5 times... To, this is hard. Okay, forget it. It's a football field. So, That's right. So imagine standing on one side of the football field and looking to, looking to the other. Um, you know, Jesus being early in the morning, dawn, right? There's still maybe a little bit of gloom upon the land, right? 
Uh, it makes total sense that they would have looked at the figure standing on the shore. They would have heard him, his voice echoing well off the water, but not necessarily for them to have recognized him all at all at once, right? And yet there's this interesting aspect of when they finally get to shore and they're eating breakfast with Jesus, and we'll get to this, I guess, that John makes this interesting comment that uh, none of the disciples dare to ask him, who are you, you know? And remember that Mary, uh, of course, she was, uh, 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 Jesus revealed himself to Mary Magdalene. And at first, you know, she, she didn't re- re- realize who it was. And this calls to mind, I think, the St. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians that talk about the glorification of the resurrection body. Mm-hmm. It is a real human body. In fact, it's probably more human than the bodies that we uh, have today, which are so infected by sin and death that we, we don't even know what our bodies are for. You know, we don't even know the glory that God intends for them. And yet Christ is glorified in the resurrection and more than just glorified in a human way. His divinity is now uh, no longer being, uh, how do we say, hidden from the eyes of the world, but now it's being taken up and ma- into his hands and, and manifested more and more, right? And so there's probably an aspect of his glorification uh, of the divinity shining through the flesh. Uh, there's probably an aspect of the, just the nature of the human body post-resurrection, post-victory over death, that makes it so that sinful eyes can't easily gaze upon and even understand what they're seeing, you know? Mm. Uh, so it, it, uh, nevertheless, to get back to the point of the text where we were, you know, Peter, uh, John understands not so much from what he sees, but from what he hears, right? Uh, that's a pretty important theme so far. Yeah. Peter dives into the water. He swims to Jesus. We don't know who got there first, by the way. As some, well, you know, John, John told us that he won the race to the, the empty tomb earlier. So yeah. I guess Peter must have won this one, and maybe John didn't want to write that down. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, those. So here's yes. Well, I, and, oh, I just as you as you were talking about what Peter does and the desire to get to Jesus as quickly as he can. Yes. Thinking about Luke chapter five, there when when Jesus gives the miraculous catch of fish and Peter realizes what's going on yeah. and who he's talking to, he tells him there, "Depart from me, because I'm a sinful man." Yes. But here he he's drawn to Jesus, which I think. To maybe to go back to what you were saying earlier about the difference between the two calls or the, the imperfect and now the perfect, maybe that detail adds to that. It absolutely does. I mean, again, for St. Peter in the boat on the Sea of Galilee in Luke chapter 5, <clears throat> he realized he stands in the presence of divinity and that sinful flesh cannot stand in the presence of divinity and live. It must necessarily die. Peter knows one thing for certain. And that is, he is a sinner. He knows well the testimony of Moses and the law and the conviction of his conscience. And so against what maybe some of my brothers want to say, that Peter is wrong to say what he says in Luke chapter 5, I, I in fact admire him and say this is godly contrition. You know, he understands that, that Jesus has done something that, that shows that he is in fact, right, mysteriously from his point of view then, bound together with divinity. Uh, the, the true God is now somehow impossibly, and yet it's happening, standing in the person of this man, uh, telling me to, to do uh, this, this wonderful catch of fish that was outside of my human strength. And so Peter does what any Hebrew would have done 
and, and what St. Peter, or what even uh, St. Peter says, what Isaiah says, woe is me, right? Yeah. I'm an yeah. unclean man of a people of unclean lips. And, and that's why he casts himself down at Jesus' feet. Now, what's fascinating to me is you, maybe you would think even greater uh, uh, sort of abject, abject uh, uh, sort of confession before Christ after his denial, right? And yet the effect of the resurrection and what this means about God's reconcilia- reconciliation with men means that when Christ appeared twice before for the last two weeks on Sunday, that this was in fact great comfort for St. Peter and great joy for him. He didn't dread Jesus. Jesus was for him his treasure, his delight. Uh, he wanted nothing more than to, to see him with his eyes, to embrace him with his arms, because he did not fear Jesus the judge, but he knew through the resurrection, Jesus the savior from his sin, his terrible sin, right? And so I think even though it's right to say what comes after, in verses, uh, you know, uh, what is it, 15 and following? Mm. Uh, that, yeah. uh, that uh, hey, this is Peter's absol- threefold absolution for his threefold sin. Yeah, that's, that's fine. That's good. I, I, I don't for a minute doubt that Peter was, in fact, forgiven before. Because he did stand in the presence of the risen Christ twice before. And Jesus spoke great words of blessing, saying, peace be with you. And did he say, for you, you, but not for Peter? No, not at all. But just like the call of the gospel goes out everywhere from every pulpit, uh, the, the, the gospel was for all who were there, right? And maybe, it, 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 maybe Peter would have been too bashful to have addressed himself directly to Jesus at that time. But nevertheless, those comforting words, peace be with you, made the difference between Peter cowering at Jesus' feet in fear of a judge and Jesus and, and, and Peter leaping into the water, desirous of his redeemer. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. This, this section of the text particularly strikes me as having a lot of details, which, which I've always attached to the, the thought that, well, John's there, he's an eyewitness. And you, you see that level of eyewitness detail. And yet some of those details are just tantalizing and wanting to, to find more there. And for me, it's always been that number 153 fish. <laughs> but there, there are other details. You mentioned the fact that, you know, Peter's naked. There's the right side of the boat as opposed to simply the other side of the boat. There's, there's other details that probably have been allegorized in the past. What do you think, Pastor Flamey? How much, how much are we to make of this level of detail? Is there, is there more going on than the testimony of the eyewitness? I, I always think maybe there is, but I'm just not bright enough to follow it. <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously, sure. I mean, why not? Uh, they cast it over the right side because the right side is the side of the gospel, right? The right side is the side of blessing. The left side is the side of, of the law and curse or something like that. I, I mean, the ancients definitely thought of it that way. They said, this is, this is a spiritual blessing when Jesus says, throw it on the right side of the boat. Okay, that's fine. Uh, also, the, I don't know. I have to tell you this story. It's, it's pretty funny. I have a really good friend. And maybe some of your listeners know him. Uh, he's a good pastor. He's serving. Uh, vac- he's doing some vacancy work out in uh, out in Pennsylvania right now, uh, filling in for folks. And he works closely with our Lutheran brothers and sisters in places like India and Sri Lanka and Nepal. And he has a, a mission society that he heads up that does wonderful work out there. God be praised. It, anyways, he's one of the smartest theologians that I know, and. 
uh, for some reason, he was here, I think, to talk about the Mission Society. Uh, he was here in Roswell, and I said, hey, you should come to our Winkle. You'll love it. We read from the Greek and all this good stuff. And so he came. And of course, he he, uh, he was dazzling us with uh, his knowledge of the Greek language and uh, his attention to detail. And we were, in fact, covering this very pericope. And we came to 153 fish. And I jokingly, in my way, say to Edward, now, Edward, surely you can give us the true spiritual meaning of this number. And he looks at me and, and, and uh, with very intense eyes, as is his manner. And says, yes, I can. And, I, you know, everybody just goes silent to the room. And he says, I need a piece of paper and a pencil. And he says this in his haughty British accent, you know. And so somebody gives him a piece of paper and a pencil. And, and he starts, no kidding, doing like pretty complex math and drawing a diagram on the piece of paper, explaining the deep spiritual significance of this number. I, I, can't, even, I can't even begin to tell you what he was doing. First and foremost, because I don't get math. And, and second of all, because it required sort of this uh, mystagogical understanding of, of figure and shape, uh, like there, there was stuff going on with a circle and a triangle and, and all this other stuff. And so at the end there, I, like we're all just kind of staring at awe and this, at this, the spiritual significance of this number. I can't even tell you what the spiritual significance was at this point. And he says, and then he says something offhandedly like, but you all know that already. And he kind of takes the paper away and puts it in his pocket. Oh, man. <laughs> so there it was. It was, it was exposited for me, explained that because I wasn't quick enough, I didn't get it. <laughs> Forgot to take the snapshot of the picture yeah. on your phone. Yeah. Okay. So what I will tell you, this is kind of cool. Uh, uh, St. Augustine, and I think that Edward was riffing off of St. Augustine, right? Uh he says that, look, we, this number is, in fact, uh, communicating a spiritual truth, and this is it. The number 10 signifies the law. How does 10 signify the law? It's pretty straightforward. The Ten Commandments, right? And he says, now, before there was only the law, just as we read in the prolegomena of John's gospel in John chapter 1, uh, uh, that, that Moses came preaching the law. The law came through Moses, yes. And then Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And, and, and so what is the number for grace? That's, that's a good question. What do you think it would be? The number for grace? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. We're, we're going to testing you to see how good of a numerologist you are. Man, and morning. I know we're going to, after we read John, we're going to read the epistles, and then we're going to read the Revelation. So I, You better I, get good I at this, to, man. I need to be, I yeah. know I need to get better at this. The number for <laughs> grace? I don't, I, I honestly, I, I wouldn't know which one to pick. Okay. I, so St. Augustine says it's the you, number seven. Oh, see, and I thought of that, but I, I didn't know. So why is seven the number for grace? It's the Sabbath day, the sanctifying day. Ah, okay. It's the day when the Holy Spirit does his work, right? And we receive the blessings of the word as opposed to applying our, 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 you know, applying our strength, right? Which is in fact, the work of the law during the other six days of the week. So 10 for the other six days, seven for Sunday, right? 10 plus seven equals? 17. Yes. I can do that. Okay. And then it, math, and then everything gets a little bit fuzzy for me, right? So we get to 17. And that's great. He says, now what you do is you add one plus two plus three plus four plus five all the way up to 17 and you get 153. Wow. Uh that's great. So, so, okay. Maybe I, so, so I'm with you. I'm what like, does that I, mean? 
I got the 10, I got the three. So this represents, the catch of fish represents like the fullness of the gospel has come, not just the preaching and the testimony of the law, the, you know, the test, Old Testament, but now the New Testament is here now through Christ Jesus. Nothing is missing. He has died, he's raised again. And now all that's, that's necessary is for this word to go out into the ends of the earth, right? But again, I mean, why would you take 17 and then add up all the way to, to the point where you get 153? I mean, this is, this is where, honestly, numerology loses its charm for me. And, and it, it, I've, I'm just thinking to myself, well, you're just going to fudge the numbers until you get what you want, you know? So, <laughs> but, but I wrote down the quote from Augustine because I do think there may be, I don't want to dismiss it out of hand completely because these guys are way smarter than me. And he says, why do we add up one plus two plus three plus four plus five? St. Augustine says, because it represents all who partake of the grace of the Holy Spirit, right? Who, who enjoy the benefits of the preaching of the law to show sin and also are blessed by the benefits of grace, the preaching of the cross of Christ, right? And so this represents sort of everybody who's brought in through that net of the gospel. Hmm. You know, I mean, I, I don't disagree with the way that the application ends up running that the surely the gospel is for all people and I mean brought in through the nets and and those things in terms but whether or not the number 153 is meant to communicate all that is where like you said I don't know that I'm just I'm smart enough for that and and to go back to kind of where we started with the whole why are they going fishing this is are they passing time those kinds of things in, in my own mind, again, the number 153 strikes me as something that is a, an eyewitness detail. And I can, I can very easily imagine a group of fishermen looking at a net full of fish that's this heavy that they can't haul it in right away. And they, they say to themselves, you know, that's a huge catch of fish. Let's count them to see how many we got. And so they counted them and there was 153. And I, I know that that's really boring, and it, maybe that's just because I'm not smart enough to figure out anything more than that. But it it does strike me again as just a, as a lending credence. John was there; they counted these fish. It was really big. There was 153, in fact. And if there's a spiritual meaning, I I, mean, I, I don't know that I'm smart enough to figure it out. Yeah, so I'm with you on this, by the way. I, and we'll just be <laughs> two, you know, Missouri Synod country bumpkins. I don't care. There we go. I'll embrace it. Because, like you said, this minute detail of, histor- of, of, of a piece of history, that somebody to say, I was there. I'm bearing witness to what I saw. We even counted the fish. There's 153 of them, right? And why is this so important? It's because it bears witness to the, the fact that these things happened. I mean, we're not talking about stylized spiritual details, Right. Uh, a, a sort of a legendary tradition that bubbles up out of a Eucharistic community. I know that that's how many people believe that the scriptures came into being. I do not think that that's how St. John's gospel at all came into being. I believe that John heard from Jesus the words that he committed to writing. And I believe that John experienced the things that he is now bearing witness to through this, these sacred writings, right? That he saw it when the blood and the water came out of Jesus' side. And when he says that we know his testimony is true, that's to say, you know me. You know that I tell the truth. You know that I wouldn't lie to you. I was there with Jesus. I reclined at his breast, right? I heard everything that he said. And so this is another uh, detail, such as the ones that we have heard before, to convince us that Jesus is not a spiritual phantom, but is in fact a living man, right? 
uh, not dead, not crucified and buried, but a living man glorified and seated at the right hand of the Father in the full possession of, of divinity, ruling over all things. And he will come again on the last day to judge the living and the dead. So you have to understand the, the setting where St. John would have been preaching his gospel and, and where it was first distributed in Asia Minor. It wasn't, I mean, they were barely out of the first century when already Gnosticism was beginning to take a hold of the Christian imagination. Why is that? Well, I mean, there, there are many reasons for it. One, one in particular is that there, there's bound up in Platonic thinking and even in Oriental, some aspects of Oriental thinking, that anything concerned with the flesh is corrupt, sinful, base, you know, not worthy of, uh, of God. But of course, what happened in the gospel? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, right? And we have seen his glory, the glory that came through the person of Christ, who is true flesh and blood, right? And so St. John wanted uh, preached against these uh, proto-Gnostics, men like Serenthus, who said that Jesus only appeared to be human. Uh, he only appeared to eat and to drink. In fact, he was, uh, he was a spiritual being free from the corruption of flesh. How dare, Serenthus would try to say things like, how dare we think that, that Christ was uh, capable of something as base as human matter, right? The same kind of filth that, that covers your hands when you work in the mud outside. How dare we? To which St. John says in his epistle, and he's making that point definitely here, that whoever denies that Christ came in the flesh is antichrist. Right? So for St. John, Christ had to come in the flesh because he redeemed our flesh. Christ wasn't raised in a spiritual manner, but he was bodily raised, right? That when Jesus dies for the sins of the world and he's raised from the dead, this isn't a spiritual redemption, but it's a redemption of the world, the cosmos. I mean, how much have we heard about this throughout John's gospel? That the redemption is a cosmic redemption, right? It, 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 it encompasses more than just the immaterial aspects of ourselves, but yes, even the matter itself. Uh, and so uh, God be praised for St. John, including this historical detail and talking about how even the risen Christ glorified, the glorified risen Christ is capable of eating breakfast with his disciples, a very human thing. I mean, he hasn't transcended humanity, but he's glorified as our human brother. And so like, uh, you know, all of the great theologians who have gone before us, we marvel with St. John and with men like Martin Luther and with our Luther, all the rest of our Lutheran fathers and all the fa and, and, and the patristics who came before them, who said that uh, a man, our brother, according to the flesh, is truly reigning over all things at the right hand of the father with all things under his feet. How amazing is that? Mm. There, I mean, there's. It is, a tr it is absolutely true. We can articulate that truth with words, but our understanding box there. Only faith can grasp this and find the joy of it in knowing that though I am corrupt flesh and blood, I know by the promise of the word of God that my flesh is redeemed, that it will be raised on the last day, and that even now as I suffer upon this earth, Christ my brother, according to the flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, right? Who shed tears like I shed tears, who ate like I ate, right? He is not, he has not transcended humanity. He is, he is our humanity, right? At the right hand of the father, ruling over all things. And the sublime comfort that that gives 
uh, uh, to all Christians everywhere should never be threatened by people who try to make more spiritual the details and the facts of the resurrection. Mm. Yeah, the, I think it was in a sermon that Luther preached for, I want to say it was the purification of Mary and the presentation of our Lord, or it could have been another another time in the, in the infant life or the childhood life of our Lord, that the deeper we plunge Christ into the flesh, the more comforting it is for us. Yes. So that, that when we see him as a human being, a real flesh and blood human being, this should be a great comfort to us. And, and to see that here from the pen of St. John in chapter 21 also brings that great comfort. We've got about a minute left here, Pastor Fleming. I'm glad you went into that because I know you wanted to talk about it. Help us to wrap things up on this text this morning. Yeah. So, Happy Easter, everybody, and and uh, God be praised that it, when we hear uh, the Easter message from St. John, it's not like hearing the Easter message sometimes from uh, the, the movies that we watch that are, you know, dramatic depictions of Christ, where oftentimes you, they're, they're heavy on the, the gory details of the cross, which are absolutely necessary for us to meditate on. But sadly, they get very, very light and they pass over quickly the details of the resurrection. That's not how it is with St. John. He pays very close attention to how Jesus appeared bodily in the presence of the disciples now three times, proving his victory over the forces of sin and death and showing that the devil's reign over our hearts has been broken. Before we were held in lifelong slavery in captivity to the devil through the fear of death. And now those works of the devil have been destroyed. St. John will go on to say in his first epistle that the reason uh, the Son of God appeared among us was to destroy the works of the devil, right? And so as we meditate on these resurrection stories of Christ and pay very, very, very close attention to his words, his words of peace and blessing, of instituting the preaching of the gospel, uh, and of appearing to his disciples and seeing that he eats with them, not as someone who has transcended humanity and risen above it and left it all behind to become some kind of alien being or whatever, but in fact eats with them as his as their brother, according to the flesh, uh, this is for us great comfort in the face of all the stuff the devil's throwing at us, all the accusations against our sin, all of his reminders of death that's staring us in the face all the time, you know? Uh, so Jesus stands here, the living Christ stands here, yes, wounded for our transgressions and yet living. He stands here in this text to give us the full and complete blessing. Uh, that even though we struggle upon this earth, our life is with Christ, uh, who is reigning over all things, and he will come again on the last day. And as he is glorified and raised in this text, so we will be like him. Pastor Brian Flammy is pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. He's been helping us today to study John chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. Pastor Flammy, thanks for being our guest today. Yep, my pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Tim Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the Gospel according to St. John or the Epistles of St. John, which we will be studying next, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk again tomorrow.